This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 631, and this week we're going to honor McGregor Mac Pierce, an industry pioneer who recently passed. He was a pioneer in the mold industry. I met him in 2000 at a Merck class, and uh, we've had him on the show several times in the past. A, a great guy, a, a good friend of the show, and a, and, and a great instructor. So looking forward to some great memories of Mac, and going. we're going to play one of his old shows back. We're going to hear from a bunch of his friends, and uh, looking forward to a great show. Before we get started, we have to thank our sponsors. They are the reason we're still able to do the show. Our two newest sponsors are April Air and Sunbelt Rentals. Our marquee sponsor is Instascope at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at ACGIH.org, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute at CIRI science.org the indoor air quality association at iaqa.org the restoration industry association at restorationindustry.org the institute for inspection cleaning and restoration certification at iicrc.org and healthy buildings america 2021 at hb2021 america.org Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories at AEMLINC.com, Particles Plus at ParticlesPlus.com, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions at GrayWolfSensing.com, TSI Inc. at TSI.com, Sunbelt Rentals at SunbeltRentals.com, April Air at AprilAIRE.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Dawn Weeks in Canada, who was first to identify 80% as the percentage of people confirmed to have COVID-19 that later develop mild or moderate symptoms. The IQ radio trivia question for today, June 25th, 2021, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for the monitoring of the indoor air. Learn how to expand your IQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's today's IQ radio trivia question. The Three Little Pigs is a fable about three pigs who build three houses of different materials. A big bad wolf blows down the first two pigs' houses, but is unable to destroy the third one. Today's trivia question is, what materials were the three houses made of? Mac Pierce was okay. an environmental health consultant specializing in indoor air quality problems. 
He held a master's in public health from the University of Minnesota and was a nationally recognized speaker on mold issues. Mr. Pierce was one of the instructors at the Mid-Atlantic Environmental Hygiene Resource Center, which was founded in 1992 as a program of the University Science Center, a Pennsylvania science and technology corporation owned by 18 colleges and universities and academic centers from three states. Mac investigated mold problems in homes, commercial buildings, hospitals, clinics, and skyscrapers, and he made mycology marvelously interesting. Mac loved learning, never ceasing to pursue books, uh, engaging with friends, swimming in the lake, uh, Watab Lake, and hiking at his river cabin near Bernard. Cliff, I want to go to you first on your memories of Mac. Okay, well, first, uh, Mac kind of popped on my radar screen when I found an article that he'd written on flood-damaged homes. And I, I felt that I wanted to get to know him, so I called him up on the telephone and spoke with him for a couple of hours. I was so, I guess, impressed that I just wanted to share this guy with my world. And at that time, my world, as it is today, is engaged with people who are involved in disaster repair and uh, water damage restoration. I was instrumental in selecting him as one of the speakers for the inaugural Water Loss Institute event, which was held out in San Francisco Bay. While taken aback by his choice of attire, when, it, <laughs> when he came to the podium, he literally, literally killed it. I mean, he literally blew everyone away. He was the most uh, popular speaker at that event. This is also the opportunity that I had to introduce him to Pete Consigli, and Pete then introduced him to the, to the people in his world. So uh, we can move on now, Joe. Uh, I think we've got Mike McGinnis on the line who, who worked with Mac at Merck. And uh, Mike, uh, let's see if we've got you on. Hello, Mike. I'm, I'm here. All right, buddy. Hey, great to talk to you. you you've been, you know, I, I met you and Mac during, and Joe Steebrook actually during the same class back in around 2000 at Merck. I wonder if you could just I feel bad of, for you. <laughs> actually, it was pretty good. Davidge <laughs> Warfield. Uh, it was a great class. I um, wonder if you could tell us a little story about Mac. I can tell you lots of little stories about Mac. Um, <laughs> Cliff, thanks for your trivia question because I have a list of Mac-isms here I'm going to share with everybody. But uh, you reminded me of one right. more, and that was even the dumbest of the three little pigs didn't make his house out of paper. <laughs> well, that's right. So uh, in any event, uh, I'm just I, – I gave a lot of thought to this. Uh, so last, last winter – or two winters ago, right before COVID, I'm down in Florida, and I'm giving a presentation – and uh, they gave me an hour to talk, which for me isn't a lot of time. And uh, so I started talking and some lady put her hand up and she goes, can I ask a question? And I'm like, uh, I'd really appreciate it if uh, there's no questions because I don't have enough time to talk about what I want to talk about anyway. And besides, I don't really like you, <laughs> which cracked the whole crowd up. And, uh, and then afterwards, I thought to myself, you know what? I just channeled my inner Mac. Because I can remember Mac, like, you know, going nuts at, at uh, summer camp and uh, a couple times and just, you know, uh, entertaining dumb questions from the crowd and, you know, just sloughing them off and all that stuff uh, in his own uh, inimitable way. So, uh, you know, anytime anybody out there feels like channeling in it, their inner Mac, feel free to do that. So I met Mac 
in Charlotte, North Carolina at an RIA convention, uh, thanks to uh, our global watchdog. Uh, he, uh, Pete, Pete's responsible for pretty much everybody I know in the indoor air quality industry uh, that I like anyway. <laughs> um, and uh, Mac and I uh, hit it off immediately and I'm like, I'm watching him present and uh, I like presenting. I'm like, you know what? I, I like his style, you know, it's just uh, uh, not too serious and uh, right on with everything he said. And then uh, Mac and I got together and spent a lot of time when uh, we developed the uh, world's first uh, mold worker course at the Mid-Atlantic Hygiene Center, like uh, uh, Joe and uh, Cliff were sharing uh, with Sue Smith and all those wonderful people down there. Yep. And uh, I, I can remember, uh, you know, I kind of developed the course and, uh, and talking with Mac, I'm like, you know what, Mac, you're going to kick things off for the first four hours. And... I'm just going to let you talk about whatever you want to talk about. I'm not going to scope anything out of like that. You know, it's your four hours. You do what you want. And Mac would, you know, Mac would do his thing and he'd be, uh, you know, his, his usual thing. And, uh, you know, everything else he didn't talk about, then we incorporated into the course. But I, you know, we would, I would tell him, you know, all right, we're bringing Mac up now. So if I were you guys, I'd make sure my, uh, my make sure my, seat trays were in the upright position and my seat belts were sealed and fastened because here we go. Uh, Mac and I were road warriors and we went all, you know, we went to Cincinnati and we went to uh, New Orleans and we took this thing on the road. And, and you know, at that time we, we couldn't, we were running one a month and everybody was coming in and saying, you know, can you certify us? And we're like, no, but uh, you'll leave here a lot smarter than when, you know, when you got here. Um, but uh, we would hang out at night and, you know, we'd go out to restaurants and concerts. And uh, I know you guys will find this hard to believe, but we were at a Dire Straits concert in Philly one time. And <laughs> the people around us uh, had to keep telling us to be quiet. And I have no idea why that would be to this day. But uh, <laughs> apparently we might have been a little too, a little too boisterous or whatever. Uh, but we caught Yankee games. Uh, we would, uh, you know. Uh, one of the things we did a lot uh, was we hung in our room uh, afterwards. Uh, we would take the class out to dinner one night, but we hung in our rooms and we'd listen to music and we'd uh, change our personal environment, like uh, Joe Stebrecht would uh, say and how we re refer to it. And uh, anybody else that was changing their personal environment, we would hang out with them. Uh, so um, that's why uh, I, I mentioned Hank Ballard and uh, work with me. And, and if you guys are going to, are you going to play that or do you need me Absolutely. to play it? Okay. Well, the, the, the story behind that was uh, I have a daughter named Annie, and uh, I mentioned that, and uh, Max says, oh, well, how about that? And he pulled out Hank Ballard and the Midnighters, and he played this song, Work With Me, Annie. And I'm like, oh, man, another band I can listen to, right? Uh, I got home, and when I got home, there was a CD with uh, Hank Ballard's hits on it, including Work With Me, Annie. So uh, that, that was uh, how Max Grant. Yeah, we just, it was just there for me. Didn't say anything, and I got home, and the CD was there. Um, when, when we first started, <laughs> when we first started doing this Mid Atlantic course, Max, you know, my handouts were all PowerPoint slides, you know, and eighty pages of them or whatever. Max was like two pages. But then, uh, as time went by, uh, I went through the ma the old manuals this morning. Actually, I woke up early, and uh, I looked in there, and Max had uh, went to PowerPoint. And I looked at him and there was 75 slides of PowerPoint there of which eight were printed, <laughs> printed slides and the rest were all pictures. So Max spent four hours with four, uh, with eight printed slides talking about, um, you know, going over 75 pictures and, and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, his, I'm going to share a couple of Mac terms with you. Uh, number one, how about this? Molds are nature's garbage disposals. Yeah, yeah. Then another one, life is solar powered. Another one, <laughs> Mac, always talked, Mac always talked about self-composting homes, which uh, I've used to this day, and I think Joe uh, glommed that one as well. Yeah. Uh, and when he was talking about health effects, he talked about uh, the little macrophages that, you know, ran around our lungs, you know, surrounding foreign bodies and getting rid of them. And he goes, and they attack these foreign bodies like pit bulls on steroids. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, only Mac could come up with that. And then the other one he always talked about was his disdain for contractors who would cut corners and mold remediation to curry favor with uh, insurance adjusters so that they would get a lot of work. Uh, he didn't have a lot of, a lot of time for those guys and uh, he let it be known. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, uh, I'll, uh, I, th I think that's, I'm looking at everything. I, I could go on for a long time, but I know you guys got other time. Well, let me just uh, finish this here with my thoughts here is uh, I'd appreciate, you know, uh, you know, I'll miss Mac. He's in my heart. He, he will be there. Uh, the Zen in me just says, you know, he, his body stopped working, but uh, he's still around. And I'll ask everybody just to pray for Mac and to pray to Mac and ask Mac to send us all a little bit of kindness, a little bit of goodness, and a lot of humor. So uh, that that's my take on Mac. I'll miss him greatly. Thank you, P, for uh, hooking us all up. You know, we're still rocking and rolling all these years later and still having fun. And Mac is still with us. And uh, here's an invisible long range toast to Mac and to all you guys, and thanks for letting me share about it. Well said, Mike. Thank you for joining us. Go ahead, John. Let's get it while the getting is good. All right, Cliff, let's go back to you for a minute. I think I cut you a little short. You may have had one more. Okay, yeah. No, I, I just had uh, a story. Uh, my Mac story was um, I was hired actually by a large construction company to go to New York City and, and look at the Bear, what was formerly the Bear Stearns building, which was under construction. And I needed a mold guy. So uh, certainly I, Mac was my first choice in uh, – and he and I went out there together. So we're actually, uh, the night before we inspect the building, we're in our hotel, we're in the restaurant, we're eating. And all of a sudden, we hear this voice and this bellowing voice. It turns out that it was James Earl Jones, who was in the same restaurant with us. So uh, not only did we hear him, but we encountered with him and, and chatted with him. And uh, he's, a, he's a really good guy. So we're looking at this building, and this is a high-rise building, and it's under construction. And New York, you know, like in most places, they start at the bottom and they build up. But there's always a deadline. And I guess in New York, there's a really tight deadline. So the last thing they put on this high-rise building is the roof, and they begin hanging drywall inside, and they begin painting inside, and they begin putting flooring inside. The building start at the bottom and start putting the stuff up, but the roof's open and there's inclement weather. So naturally water gets inside, there's water damage uh, and there's mold. So there are two things I remember about the mold inspection that Mac and I made in the building. The first was that our, the construction manager 
uh, kept telling us no pup tents, no pup tents. And uh, by pup tents, he didn't want any containments visible in this building. He didn't want any oh. of the clients and tenants and so on and so forth, you know, <laughs> anything about mold. So the protocol we had to put together couldn't have any pup tents. And the second thing, and, and, and probably more important one, was we, we were down in the basement, and Matt and I are down there with our flashlights, and we're looking around. All of a sudden, the contractor or representative calls us, and he calls us over, and he says, you know, is there such thing as orange mold? And I'd never seen it. Mac had never seen it. We go over there, and, you know, Mac's looking at it. And, uh, you know, the, the, the contractor's representative asks him what it is. And Mac says, I'm not sure I need, you know, my microscope in order to so on and so forth. So the contractor's representative named this stuff Halloween-looking shit. <laughs> So every time, and when it's Halloween, anytime I see a pumpkin, anytime I see the color orange, I remember HLS Halloween looking shit. So that's uh, my story. Back to you. The HLS story. All right, Cliff. Thank you. Hey, hey uh, Cliff, this is Mike. And uh, I looked at that same building on your request, too. And uh, all the yeah. mold was on the sheetrock in the elevator shafts. Right. And they they right, want me right. to go in. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> How, you can't get anybody in there. Uh, it's too bad that Bear Stearns went out of business too, because they still owe money, owe me money for that job. I don't think uh. I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> HLS mold. Uh, thanks for reminding me. <laughs> the HLS mold. School. HLS mold. All right, John. Let's go to Joe Steebrook's uh, little tribute. We had Joe on earlier, and he taped a tribute to Mac. Tell us a little bit about Mac, how you met him, and uh, what you remember about the man. Well, I, I met I met Mac in Minneapolis at an EBA Energy Efficient Building Association conference, and um, I, at that time I wasn't the most popular guy for EBA, and they had me speak on a Saturday morning at eight in the morning, the last day of the conference, with this guy Mac Pierce, and of course you know they were both they were punishing both Mac and I. And I had never met him. And so, you know, like I'm irritated that got to get up at freaking early in the morning. There's nobody going to be there. And, and, and sure enough, there were 10 people plus Mac and I and Mac started talking and I laughed so hard. I cried. I, I had tears running down and it was he was so insanely Mac Pierce like and I'd never seen that before. And and. I mean, I remember the the best line that I got was, you know, you could convince a blindfolded epileptic wearing with, with, with drunk epileptic to cross Niagara Falls on a high wire without a net, but it wouldn't be a good idea. <laughs> you probably shouldn't do this to your building. Anyway, it was, it was like that, the, you know, the whole morning, well, you know, 90 minutes and it was spectacular. And so I invited him to summer camp and he was the only speaker that got a standing ovation twice. Legendary of all of, I mean, you know, of course, you know, those of you who have met him, who met him or knew him, knew how spectacular he, he was. It's just that, you know, coming to speak in front of 500 people at summer camp where these people have never heard of Mac Pierce and he brings the house down and people stand up and cheer and applaud. 
that was that was impressive my favorite mac pierce personal moment was we were in indianapolis and uh he was he didn't have much good taste in alcohol and i was trying to tell him you know what a good wine is versus a bad wine and and he uh um and so i pulled out a 1997 Sasakaya, which is the best wine on the planet. And I have a picture of Mac rubbing the 97 Sasakaya. And that has um, been on my, it's been on my laptop forever. And it, I, I look at it when, uh, you know, to bring back Mac, Mac memories. And, 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 and so, you know, that was Mac in his prime. It was uh, 2005 and we both ate, unhealthy food but drank really good wine and told stories and um i miss them already yeah i uh i met both you and mac at merck back in 2000 and uh one thing about mac is he did not suffer fools very well um he he he, he did not and and uh, uh but that's okay um, I, I think uh, fools deserve not to be suffered. Yeah, he. Uh, somebody in the class said something <laughs> that got him uh, on a rant. That uh, it was amazing, and uh, he was a great speaker. We enjoyed. I learned a lot. I had Doctor Dieter was with me at the time, and uh, he fell in love with Mac and you and Mike McGinnis, and uh, we've been you know hanging out here and there ever since. I got another Mac story. So uh, we're out in Alaska at, uh, in Seward, Alaska. They've got, uh, used to have a building science construction conference and um, we're taken out on a, on, on a, on a, on a boat. And uh, Mac was terrified of the water and he, you know, literally lay down on the bottom of the boat and kind of was whimpering and we had to take him back in. It was, you know, such a tough guy. And then you put him in a, this magnificent sailboat and it's, you know, sunny and it's not rough. And, and he's just, he was a water expert, but hated to be on the water. I mean, that, and I, I remember that I, and I, I teased him at first and I realized, well, no, no, this is, this is not teasing anymore. This is okay, buddy. Well, we're, we're, Markham, turn the boat around. <laughs> Markham, George, turn the boat around. We, we got to, this is serious. Mac is not handling this very well. Anyway, so uh, a world-famous water expert who couldn't be on the water. I mean, McGregor Pierce. Love you, Amazing. What, what um, you know, Mac taught a lot on mold and mycology. Is anything that stands out that he taught that, that you think our listeners might learn from he thought mold testing was a waste of freaking time right and he was right before a lot of people he was and and the he said joe you're a mold expert and i said huh i'm not a microbiologist he says but you know water you don't look for mold by looking for mold you look for water because the mold needs the water so water experts are better mold experts than mold experts. And the big thing is that 
you don't look just for water that's there. You have to look for water that was there. So was it there? Is it there? Will it come there? That is what I learned from Mac Pierce. Great stuff, Joe. All right, let's get it over to Pete Consigli, the Restoration Global Watchdog. Pete, apparently you uh, you uh, were the one that kind of got Mac going with all this group, and uh, love to get your thoughts. Yeah. Well, she, um, you know. You know, above all, it's funny listening to Joe. I didn't think I was going to get emotional, but lot, you know, listening to Mike and uh, and Cliff and Joe brings a lot of memories back to me. Um, above all, Mac was a building scientist. You know, he was a master of public health, and it, and for years we always they encouraged him and his friends like Pat Hellman and others at the University of Minnesota encouraged him. To get his PhD, and, and he could have, but I just think he he probably didn't have the patience to write the thesis and go through the whole process. You know, he 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 got his PhD in the streets and dealing with people and being able to take you know him and Joe had one thing in common: they could take very complex uh, ideas and principles and scientific principles and put it down on a fifth grade level and just make it uh, not only understandable but you know enjoyable and fun to listen to. And that's very hard. Um, so when Joe says, you know, Max is don't look for the mole, look for the water. And, you know, Joe obviously is, is a building science guy and he's, he specializes in intrusion and building envelopes, it's building science. And so all the diagnostic work and all the investigation that Mac did really is rooted in building science. And all, the mold is almost secondary to it. And, you know, when I learned that firsthand of, of working with him for so many years. Um, I, so I, I, I got a list of all kinds of things here. And one thing I will say is that uh, at one point, you know, you had a, you have a, you've been flashing a lot of photos up there. The, you had the one of Mac with the tambourine. That, that was a summer camp photo. There was another one, him as summer camp. They had up with the two to, two to long-term summer camp participants. And then you had their outdoor summer camp kitchen in the back. You know, he was holding court. He was talking. But uh, the one with the tambourine, yeah, that one there holding, uh, you know, there, there's a summer camp kitchen. But the other one, he had the tambourine. That was in, in the room with the band, right, where he's grooving. And he just said uh, he was music. He, you know, he was always, he was omnipresent all the time at all the summer camps. You know, that was in the clubhouse where the bar is and where the band would play. And um, the, the thing is, is that, the, so the one year, that other photo, John, put that other photo up there, the one with Steve Brook and then Pat Hellman, the, the, uh, the, the Restoration Good Guy Award. So what happened is this was in 2009 and for whatever reason, Mac couldn't make it to summer camp that year. And so we had, uh, we did, uh, the REA did this uh, special award that Patty Harvard did. It was a surprise for Joe. He didn't know about it. And since Mac wasn't there, we had Pat Hillman. He, he's the PhD professor at the University of Minnesota. Anyone that's been around summer camp in the building science world, he's another one of these Twin City guys with a lot of talent in the Twin Cities. And uh, we did this presentation about Joe and Mac for 15 years of service to the restoration industry to help in the industry understand building science and mold. And uh, the, um, Pat accepted it on Mac's behalf. And uh, then there was an article written up in the magazine where we actually dropped a picture of Mac in there and we did a little write on it a couple of months later. 
And uh, but the main reason why we did that, we want to do it in front of that audience with that crowd is to recognize them with their peers and how much they helped another industry. And anyway, we uh, in the history of the RIA. I know of no other speakers that were more highly lauded than Joe Stebrick and Mac Pierce. They were one in one A and you could put them in any order you want. And we're talking a sustained excellence of 10 to 15 years, contributions to the magazine, uh, presentations at conferences and conventions, um, and uh, networking with the members. And uh, it, it, it was, it's just, it's unparalleled. In 19, the, the, the WLI conference that uh, Cliff talked about in 19, uh, Mac was part of a panel with uh, Peter Sirk and David Bierman, and they gave a mold presentation back in the day when, you know, the mold, the mold is gold era hadn't even started yet. People the, it, outside of the core industrial hygiene community, they, they didn't know who Phil Morey was yet and all of these guys, right? And yep. uh, Mac gave this presentation to an audience of about 300 who at the time a lot were skeptical. What's the big deal with mold? And uh, at the end of that presentation, that panel got a standing ovation that lasted for over a minute. So kind of like Joe said, very rarely did people at these high quality events, a summer camp and others, did people get a standing ovation. And uh, it, it was that kind of thing. And of course, you know, look, Peter and David did a good job at match. Mac was the linchpin. He was the glue that held that panel together. He, he was just, he was absolutely fabulous. Um, I remember when Mac came down now. So Clifford told me about Mac. And he said, Pete, I met this guy. He's going to be like the keynote kicking off for a conference. And uh, uh, he's, he's a little different. I go, ah, I'm different. Why? You're preaching to the choir. Different. Like, I'm supposed to be shocked that he's different. No, I mean, come on. So anyway, we're down there in the meeting room early getting it organized. It's about 630. And all of a sudden, this guy busts into the room. And I, I didn't know who Mac was. And I hadn't seen a picture of him or anything. He bust into the room. He, he literally rolled out of bed. And he had this wild-eyed look in his face, and he's, he's holding up one slide. This was back with PowerPoint. You know, before he, everything was digital, he had to make the little slides and put them in the trays. He had this one slide that he had that he needed put in the slide presentation they had presented. And he came in. I said, who are you? He says, I'm your key. I said, oh, you're back. So he goes, yeah. So anyway, I said, well, give me the slide, Mac. No problem. I'll be in there. He goes, any coffee, any coffee. I said, yeah. I said, hey, by the way, Mac, uh, you plan on getting dressed up for the event, right? Oh, yeah, don't worry. Don't worry. No problem. <laughs> he shows up an hour later for the event. I think the only thing different that he has, he put that little custom street. <laughs> and anyway, but nobody cares. <laughs> you know, it was just, it was pure Mac. It was so unique. It was such a great style. It was unbelievable. Um, you know, the Merck, the Merck thing was really a riot. Uh, you know, Cliff and myself and went there in the mid nineties and, and we saw Steve Brook and a bunch of us went uh, with Peter Sirk and there were a number of us. And then we, um, uh, and, and we, and we, we, that's when we first met Shin Yang and John Tiffany, you know, and, uh, and Phil Maury and all these guys. And, uh, so Cliff and, and myself, uh, eventually we wound up doing a special fire and water restoration under the Merck program to, to teach their audience on the emerging field of restoration to them. 
And uh, at one point, I said, you know, this molting is getting big, Sue. I said, you need to put a mold conference together. I said, I got the three perfect guys. I said, you got McGinnis, who already was a trainer with Merck. I said, he'll do the health and safety stuff. I said, you know, he's the, he's the industrial hygienist guy. I said, then we got this guy, Matt Pierce. She kind of really didn't know you. I said, hey, you got to trust me. He's going to take this dry top of a mold and blow the audience away. And then she already knew who Davich was, and Davich had been around for years. And, uh, and I said, he'll put the remediation angle to the whole deal. Well, they did that two-day course. And the first course that we did, the room was packed. And we built a containment center down in the basement of Merck. And, uh, and then we, we decided we gave a, a, we did a fit test respirator for everybody in the class. Now, the guys in that class, Joe was there with Dieter, like he said, Peter Cirk came, Bob Crow was there. I could keep going down the list. A lot of the people that are in that class. And Mikey, this is on your behalf, Mr. McGinnis. Mike li likes to say, they, they were the first guys to do this mold class. And when Mike was talking about that, people said, can you certify me? Certify? Well, there was no certification yet. But then a lot of people that attended that class, then became prominent, well-known trainers and entered into the certification field. Based on the information that came out of that Merck class of those three guys. But I remember when they did the fit testing, Cliff had a beard. And Cliff was in a class. And they're going to fit test Cliff. So there's 35 people in the class. Cliff's up there. And then he said, but wait a second, the OSHA law, you know, you're not allowed to fit test somebody with the facial hair. So McGinnis says, and Max, well, let's see if we can do it. That's all BS anyway, right? <laughs> so they put the, the respirator on Cliff and with the facial hair. They have it on him, and then they got the irritant smoke out, and they're trying to see if Cliff could, will cough to bust the test and have a good seal. They tried for a minute and a half. They had people in the audience coughing because they weren't wearing a mask. <laughs> and Cliff stood there like the Statue of Liberty. He didn't bat an eyelash. As a matter of fact, as I remember, even the inside of the respirator didn't clog up. And anyway, we said, somebody said to Michael, Michael, what about the OSHA? Ah, don't worry about that. You know, anyway, so Cliff was good to go. I remember that from that. Um, I'll tell you the, the, uh, Mac, um, me and Mac, after that, we got a lot of requests to go around the country and do training for uh, a lot of the restoration companies who would do con uh, continued education training for the insurance industry, property management, people like that. And they would get special, you know, the CC credits. Yep. And we used to do these tours. We would tour Kansas, North Carolina, all these various states where a lot of the members were. One or two members would, would host something. They would get these courses approved through the states. And a lot of those states had the reciprocal agreement and then one guy would say hey that went good then that went good and this was back in the day when people didn't know what mold was mold was still covered under the insurance policies and i'll tell you we some of the some of the programs i'll tell you two things in particular and this is a true story and you can't make this stuff up in kansas uh one of the sponsors there out in western kansas called called up he said he said pete you know uh you think we can have you and matt come back i said well yeah i imagine you know we'll see he said well, what's going on he goes you know, you guys were such a big hit. He goes, we got guys that didn't give us work and wouldn't work with us for years. We said, you know, those two guys, that, that Italian boy from New York and that, that other guy, you know, um, that, that other guy, uh, you know, the, the guy, uh, he said, yeah, yeah, that guy, because they didn't explain who he was. He <laughs> said, the calls that we got were unbelievable. We had that in North Carolina. As a matter of fact, one of the past presidents, a good friend of Cliff's and mine, Frank Eden, with Mac and me did one there in North Carolina, and we had the room packed. We had a big stage. It was well over 100 insurance agents and adjusters, and it was pretty tough in North Carolina to get that course approved. 
And I remember Frank calls me about six months later. He says, Pete, he goes, we got to book you guys to come back. I said, why? He says, the, the insurance commission department in the state of North Carolina getting so many requests to bring you two guys back because they got more Asians than people who want to get the credits and they don't want to go listen to one of these dry presentations where you get a guy reading out of a policy manual book. And uh, anyway, but that was the kind of stuff we did. Now, I remember we did one for Alan Gelfs in New Jersey and the IRS boys and we, the, the room was, the room was packed at a health and they was even Alan, you know, they were very nervous about how the audience would receive Mac because don't worry about it. And I remember Mac gets out there and um, uh, I would usually do the opening of the setup and bring Mac out. And Mac was over in the corner chatting or something. I got a hundred people in there and I go, Hey Mac, Mac, you're on. Oh, you know, he goes like this and he comes out there and then he prances, you know, and I and so before I do it, so the two of us are up there and we're like Evan Costello. We got a room of these serious New Jersey adjusters, and of course Alan and all the, the sponsors, they're all nervous as heck, you know. And he goes, Oh, he goes, the ringmaster is called. He says, Pete's the ringmaster, and I'm the show pony. <laughs> and I go, Well, I mean, what are you trying to say, Mac? I'm putting a circus on there anyway, and that was it. And I sat down, and Alan is like, I can see him back there going like this. Anyway, Mac took the stage. <laughs> We didn't just say anything more. We blew him away. It, it was just fabulous. And I, I remember, you know, he has these great expressions and these machisms. And, they, and this thing with sampling that they talked about. Mike talked, you know, and uh, Joe talked about the sampling. So Mac, Mac starts off this one presentation. It says something about sampling. And he goes, well, sampling, sampling, sampling. Let me tell you about sampling. And at that time, Bill Clinton was the president. So he says, you know, you could be walking down the street. I'll tell you about it. You want to take sample? He said, I like walking down the street and there's some bum sleeping in a sidewalk and you kick the bum and you say, hey, pal, what do you think of Bill Clinton? He goes, there, I took a sample. Now, I don't know how to know what to make, what the connection was in that. And it just stuff just came off his head, but the audience is laughing and they're just thinking, you know, I guess what Max's point was is that taking a samples, you know, at the end of the day, it's an opinion. And too many people that took samples, they put too much reliance on the samples when he says, what do I need to take a sample when I can see the mold growing on a wall? Now, look, we do not get it. There's a lot of IEPs on this call. We don't have to get in the physical uh, the discussions about the, the post-remediation, verification, litigation. We all know that stuff. But put it in the context, 25, 30 years ago, when mold was on the uptick, it was still covered by insurance and, and everything else. And you had these hardcore people that saying, well, show me why we need to pay. Why do we need to do this? And you know, one of the big problems was back in the day, maybe I am just preaching to the choir. Oftentimes there's so much money paid on evaluation, assessment and sampling. And Cliff could finish the sentence for me. There's, there's no money, no left, money over left, to, left over for remediation. There's no money left over to do the remediation. <laughs> <laughs> and once they went into the policy limits and started limiting coverages, that became a lot more important, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. Because at the end of the day, you have to remediate the job. Yep. <laughs> and that people want money to pay for that, it, obviously, if they have coverage. And that's the most important thing. But, uh, you know, that's a lot of early history that took place. These are true stories. There's a little embellishment. Maybe, maybe not. But I got to tell you, we, we really didn't, didn't really go far, you know, fall far from that. I, I will close with this, and then I know we're going to move on. And I don't know how many people are going to stick around till the end of the show, because I know we're going to do the, you know, the uh, replay of Mac show. And then we're going to do the roundup. And uh, one of the things that we're going to do is I have, we have a presentation that Mac did in 2007. That's a classic presentation. Matter of fact, him and Steve Brick were the two mini coach speakers. 
in Garden Grove, California, the REA Fall Conference. And Steve Brook did a presentation. This is in 15 minutes. We call them mini keynotes. He did a presentation called uh, the, uh, the Second Law of Thermodynamics for Dummies. And Joe had 10 slides, and he made it as simple as he could possibly be on understanding the second law and how it applied to evaluating and drying buildings. Matt's presentation was called the Idiot's Guides for the Rules of Drying. It was hysterical. And what Mac actually did a research study to prove his point by cleaning his socks and then drying his socks through the various methods of air drying, hot, you know, using heat, desiccant, you know, doing all the different drying methods. He weighed the socks and took the water out. He measured the time and he created the rules of drying for idiots in the classic Mac style. It's unbelievable. And I think there's a whole new generation of people that need to, to, uh, to, to grasp the rules for dummies and for idiots, you know, which we took that, you know, off of those series of books. They not, they quite frankly are not really for dummies and idiots. They're taking complex principles, putting them in the most simple forms and then relating them to people so that they can actually apply them in practice. Because if people can't understand and apply these principles in practice to do a better job, to solve their customers' problems, to get the property managers and insurance companies to pay the bills. If they can't do that, then what difference does it make how much you know and whether you passed an exam or whether you did all that stuff? You know, it, 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 it has no application at the end of the day. And Mac was the kind of guy, and Joe Seabrook and others, and McGinnis falls right in that path, and there's many others who are able to present those type of principles from practical field experience and training and, and scientific training and study and give it to practitioners and people that had to apply it in a field. And of course, that's as big a challenge today as it ever was. And I'm gonna go through that presentation in a lightning speed at the end. Mac used to do that when he had a speed of slides. He said, watch out for the flashing lights, you know, don't, don't get, you know, like that as you go through the old days, you know, you'd flip the slides and have those trays going around and flags would be flashing up there. And Mac, and Mac was brilliant at doing that to, to stay within the time frame. Uh, you know, I love the guy, I miss him. I think about him and I'll, in my closing during the roundup, I'll, I'll share my final story in the final conversation that I had with Mac, which which I will always remember. And, um, you know, and, a, and a couple other little things that I remember. You know, Joe, I'm, before I turn it back to you, this is what I'm thinking. You never, you know, we, when we wanted to put this together for Mac, we wanted a way to do this show after the celebration of life, which I guess was yesterday, the day before you had, uh, John had, had put that little sticker up there that went out and it was in the Twin Cities at an Italian restaurant. And of course, all his friends and all his buddies, a couple of them were called in. I could see they're actually on the call now. Went there and that was, you know, a lot of personal stuff probably on Mac and obviously the professional stuff. And I think that we wanted to wait until after that was done to honor Mac because in the past when we know someone passes, usually on the, the, fr the following Friday, uh, we'll play taps, we'll do a eulogy at halftime, but me and Cliff talked privately in this and we said, you know, Mac deserved more than that and we didn't want to do that. And we didn't want to undermine his celebration of life. We wanted to do it afterwards. You know, the old hindsight and foresight, if, if it had rethought it, what we did is we're trying to combine a flashback show, which is essentially playing the show from before with doing this special tribute. But at the end of the day, we could just do the entire show as a tribute of his friends 
telling stories, talking, and and then in essence celebrating his life from a professional manner to what we knew. I don't know how many people will be able to stick around until the roundup until the end, you know, because they have to come and go. And a couple of guys like Jack and people wait in, they have other appointments. But I'll tell you, those of you that can stick around, you, you'll really get a kick out of it. But let me just say this. If you can't, we certainly understand and appreciate it. You can always uh, download the podcast. Right. You can advance to that area and play it. And the other thing that I told a couple of other on early when we started recording, the WLI, the Waterloo Institute of the REA, Cliff, under his watch, we did get money commissioned to Mac. And Mac did, it took a year-long study on the effects of, uh, of moldy drywall. Could it be dried? Uh, what happens if you seal it? Will the mold come back? And then he wrote an article that was published in CNR magazine in 1999. And Joe, if you remember, I did talk at that and presented that at one of the Healthy Building Summits a few years ago as part okay. of some historical uh, research or practice. But I think we're going to make that available uh, in the blog that will go out next week so that uh, all of the loyal listeners can download that document. Um, when I talked to Mac, he, he said he had a few new ideas on it you know, before we knew he wouldn't be with us. And was I was hoping he was going to be able to present it next year at, our winter, at the winter camp, but obviously he won't be able to. But mostly a lot of that stuff still holds true today. And uh, and I was going to actually have him do an updated version of the dummy presentation, which uh, now, you know, this this will live in infamy, this presentation is. And uh, we probably can make that available to everyone in a PDF, a couple slides to a deal. And, uh, and there's a handful of other things. We're going to try to really put a resource package together besides Cliff's blog, which is just unbelievable. Nobody knows how to do the blog like Cliff. And he'll capture all the key talking points from all of us that have talked and uh, and the show because the, 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 the flashback part of the show was in the pre-blog days. And a lot of you guys who, who listen in know that yeah. when we, we rerun these or, or do a second interview on some people who are still with us, and Cliff always takes those points and integrates it in the blog to, to memorialize it forever. So it's going to be a very special blog. And we'll have some attachments and links that John Faith will do a great job that you guys will be able to access and download and, you know, circulate them and share them with people. Um, and I think they still have a lot of a really high educational value. So uh, I know I went a lot longer than I should, Joe, but, you know, you wound me up, you pressed a button, and that's just the way it is. So... <laughs> Pete, thank you so much. We we always appreciate your contribution, and uh, especially this week. Uh, Mac was a great guy, and we're going to go right now to our show we did with Mac. This is uh, show 138, episode 138, I believe it was. We're going to replay that, and then we're going to come back with the roundup. We've got it down to about 40 minutes here, so sit back, relax, enjoy, and um, if you're looking forward to the roundup, you can always uh, – Download us later on YouTube and uh, skip forward to the roundup. So, John. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Hey, hi. Hey, got a question for you. Uh, as a more mature building diagnostician. Uh, Old, you mean? Yeah. So more mature means? Well, I think. Yeah, <laughs> less hair, right? <laughs> How have your inspection methods, equipment, and uh, opinions changed? I'd say that I've become less enamored with gadgets and more looking for, you know, looking for suspicious things. You know, I, I collect mold samples and I collect a lot of them when I deal with mold problems in buildings. I have a degree in public health and I'm interested in the exposure that people are getting, but I collect, I don't know that my methods are applicable to everyone because I collect an awful lot of samples because I have my own lab and I analyze them for free and I, 
I'm just doing, it's, it's pretty crude stuff. I see some of these lab reports from some of the more renowned labs, and boy, they're, they're doing identification way beyond uh, what I have the time to bother with. <laughs> I mean, it may be important information, but really I'm looking at a, a crude exposure. So anyway, that, I'm getting off the subject. Uh, I, 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 my moisture meters are my friends, and I know that they've gotten a lot better, but I have pretty simple ones, just a, a, a little pin moisture meter. I guess you're not, you're not supposed to say brand names unless they sponsor the show, right? I don't but, care. Uh, <laughs> well, a little, Del, a little Delmorst with no digital read, just an analog Delmorst, is what the guys use in the timber industry to test the kiln drying of wood. You can actually calibrate that little pin meter to tell you what species of wood you're testing for the moisture content. And I tell you, I like an analog needle swinging better than I like a digital readout because digital instruments have a tendency to turn to nonsense, to give you nonsense, and you don't know it. Like an analog instrument won't work with a dead battery. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of tricks. The more gadgets you use, I think the thinner you're getting. There's a lot of high-tech IR equipment out there now, and I think some guys are really good at using IR to look for wet spots. So for moisture diagnosticians, people who are disaster restorers, I think a good skill with an IR camera is, is an important part of their set. But I don't tend to go out and look at water remediation as much as the aftermath. I was out, uh, I finally got my first pot house, marijuana house. Mm-hmm. And this guy had done the typical stuff. He drilled through the foundation and uh, tapped into the electrics to get it for free. And then he cut holes from the basement all the way up to the attic, and he grew the pot in the basement in wet conditions and then blew all the exhaust upstairs. And he got busted by the neighbors in the quiet suburb in the winter because they saw smoke coming out of the uh, out of the vents from the attic, and they thought the house was on fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how he got nailed. But this was two years ago, and the house has been shut up for two years. So they want me to go out there and tell them, what needs to be done? Well, you could burn the house down, or you could tear it all apart. But in fact, I walk in the door, the house had been shut up for months, and there wasn't a whiff. You know, you guys that do restoration know what I'm talking about. That You go into a house that's got a problem, it smells when you walk in the door. Your nose gets used to detecting. I'm not a bloodhound, but I can tell if something's funky or not. <laughs> I, tell people, I tell people with odors that I don't have the most sensitive nose, but if I can smell it, it's probably bad. <laughs> <laughs> but this one wasn't. It didn't stink. And there was where we did see surface growth. So, so we're playing ball with the city inspector. The kid wants to buy the house. He's the one who engaged me. But the city inspector wanted that house tested and he wants me to test it after whatever recommendations i implement are are completed so he wants to test it twice we love that you know callback work <laughs> anyway i, I where, where there was visible mold we cut into the walls and didn't find a thing what we did find using tape lifts i i put press scotch tape up on a surface and then take it back to the lab and turn it transparent look at it under the microscope and that'll show you growth you can't see if you use a contact plate, a Petri dish media contact plate, and press it against a surface, you can get pretty high growth on a surface that when you tape lift off, you don't see any viable fungal structures at all. What is that telling us? Well, I think that when we see viable fungal structures, that's that, and then that, uh, that's like the OSB uh, ceiling in the basement. I want that scrubbed. You know, I can see some fungal structures growing on there, and gosh, no matter how well he ventilates that basement, you're still going to have awful high humidity down there. And, now, how, 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 do, how do we clean that? You know, that's, that's, a, that's a challenge. And no, no instrument's going to tell you that. You see, what I'm getting at is that the gadgets were of minimal use here. You know, they, even my air sampler, what, the air samples were pretty much much less than outside and not very important. What was important was taking contact plates and tape lifts and then, you know, analyzing sort of the settled dust content to see how, how much the dust is irritating in the house and then looking at actual surfaces using tape lifts. Now, you're, I think I collected, you know, maybe 
10 square inches of tape off the entire house. <laughs> so you have to really be a good, good at picking what you're going to collect your sample from, right? Because you know, a sample is trying to estimate a, a greater reality. But, you know, you're, you're kind of thinking, well, where could it be bad? Where would be the worst place it could be? Let's look there. And if it isn't bad there, then it's probably okay. So I'd say on a scale of 1 to 10, this pothouse probably was only about a level 3 problem. Why was the city inspector concerned about mold and not concerned about, uh, you know, chemicals, uh, you know, used in, in agriculture and so on and so forth? <laughs> yeah, alachlorid. I don't think they do a lot of, uh, I don't know, you know, I don't know. I, what, what do they do for chemical treatment for that reefer? Uh, I don't think they grow it in dirt. I think they usually grow it in water. I'm not sure. It, it's, a, it's a wet process is all I know. Right. And as far as the chemicals, I don't know. Here's the problem with chemicals, Cliff. It's, it's that if you're going to test for a chemical, you have to use uh, gas chromatography, mass spectroscopy type analysis. And those tests are expensive, and you almost have to test for a chemical. You can't, if you're going to test for pesticides, you can't just, there's no bulk pesticide assay. These machines are so sensitized that they only can tell you if it's DDT or not. It doesn't tell you that it's DDE. You know, it just doesn't tell you that. It, it, it only will tell you if it's DDT or not. So you have to test for each known. And Peter will tell you, you know, when you're sending these stuff off the labs, it's very, very expensive. So when you're testing for chemicals, unless you know, if you know what chemicals is of concern, like in cocaine or meth labs, they know what chemicals to test for. There's a certain set of chemicals that they use to, to make that crap. And so they can test for those things to see how extensively the house has been contaminated by the meth lab. But if you're just looking for unknown agricultural chemicals, that's just astronomically expensive. God knows how many houses have their water tested and it passes muster, but there are seven or eight horrible things there. But you can't, if you can't taste them or smell them, you don't know they're there. And if you don't know what they are, you can't test for them. Joe. Yeah, Mac, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Um, Pleasure. I, I've got a, a question, and we, we were talking a little earlier, and I noticed one of the questions Cliff has on here is, what, what do you consider to be the most, uh, or what? Can, I guess it's what mold do you consider to be the most irritating allergen? Well, it, it, if you took, if we could take Fred or Julie, we could tell which allergen is the most, which mold would be the most irritating to them. There are bulk statistics that, some of these outdoor molds, I mean, alternaria, alternata is real irritating to an awful lot of people who have mold sensitivities. But this stuff is so subjective. You know, we don't really know that much about the immune system. And a lot of what we know is because of AIDS. Trying to solve the puzzle of what the heck this disease was has led to an awful lot of research on how the immune system works. But, you know, your, your body's trying to sort out self from non-self and people who have are more sensitive to things actually have more reactive, aggressive immune systems that quote unquote overreact to what would be a trivial exposure. A cat hops in my lap and licks my arm. So what somebody else that cat spit and cat skin just sends them just tingling off the chart with sneezing and splitting headaches. The next person isn't irritated by cats, but they're irritated by parakeet, by bird dander. You understand what I'm saying? It's not, there's not one you can pick out. And as far as poison, like you're, your question there at the beginning. I know the answer. <laughs> um, that, uh, that, uh, you know, it, 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 it's not like that. I mean, there's, there's not really one reputable medical journal article on anyone being poisoned by being in a moldy house, unless they're eating the stuff. All the, all the research I've seen on toxic mold has been done pretty much on, uh, 
animal feeding studies. I did. I read a study by a renowned indoor air quality expert. It's published all the time. He's a big shot, but about stachybotrys poisoning the animal and causing nasal bleeding. But they were shoving the spores up its nose and big. Blobs. I mean, <laughs> people don't get that kind of exposure unless they're going around with a drinking straw and you know, snorting the stuff off the wall like a junkie. You wouldn't get that kind of an exposure. So when it comes to poisonous mold, I back off of that. I guess stachybotrys, I, houses that have stachybotrys in them tend to have make allergic sufferers miserable, but houses that have stachybotrys usually are very wet. And when stachybotrys chartarum is in there, usually there's a lot of other stuff in there too. Could be bacteria, who knows, wet houses. We do know that houses that are more damp seem to make people more miserable, regardless of their health conditions. You know, Max, speaking of stachybotrys, you've been known to uh, demonstrate the dose risk response of stachybotrys charterum to a group of interested uh, parties. How do you do that? Well, what I've done in the past is just take a piece of it, a piece of drywall with some stack of butter on it, and lick my finger, rub it on her, and lick my finger again. It's not that poisonous. <laughs> and well, I, I'm told I'm not the only one that's done that. Actually, you know, some pretty renowned physicians and stuff have done it. They weren't copying me; they probably did it before me. You know, but the thing is, I think the thing that stack of is really most toxic to is the wallets of the people who are paying for abatement. Because you read some of this, I know a local guy here. He, he charged somebody twelve hundred bucks to cut out a foot of drywall below a leak toilet valve on the wall in a, in a multifamily building. He had the spacesuits and the airlock chambers and everything to cut out one square foot of drywall because this was poisonous mold. So there's been a lot of money made on it. And so, you know, and panic mongering, I know something really bad for you that you don't know about. Everybody's so into trying to make their own life safer that, that it can sucker people into spending more money and being more worried about things that really aren't that big of a concern. Annie? Yeah, I'm just curious. Um, what does mold have in common with ground soil? Taking it off the wall, you know, what, what does it have to do with it in soil? Though? Well, mold is an important component of the soil. The soil is probably the largest tissue in the body of the earth, and it's it's the vital tissue that sends up new life. And so everything that dies turns back into dirt, and then from the dirt springs the new life. That's pretty much the cycle, and maybe a little different in the ocean, but you know what I'm saying? And the molds are an important part of the breakdown team in the, you know, the decomposition of spent life, turning it back into fertile material. I mean, if you have a dead raccoon, you can't grow plants in that. But once the dead raccoon rots into the ground, it produces fertile soil. And if they take, there's just a big scandal about the agricultural industry. They're taking composting dead animal carcasses and farm fields and the runoff from the, that is probably pretty harmful. But the soil, the point is, will turn that dead cow eventually into something useful again. The point I make is that you probably know someone in your own life who's just such a worthless, lying, miserable, thieving, troublemaking, unlucky person, but even they, when they die, will be of use, because they'll turn back into dirt. <laughs> wow, that's hard to believe. But, but, the, I believe but the, <laughs> when you take dirt and you culture it, I don't care, you know, unless it maybe, maybe some kind of sand might be sterile, but I can't think of a piece of dirt that I haven't taken and cultured and gotten just millions of colonies per gram. The dirt soil is just full of all kinds of fungal spores. It's like loaded for bear. Anything that falls into the dirt will turn to dirt, and especially organic matter will turn into nice, nice composted stuff that's available for, and so there has to be a pretty good arsenal that's evolved over time to chew up all of the various nutrients, and molds are super adaptable. Within, even within a single fungal colony, there's evolution going on because they have multi, the cells are, 
are multinucleate. There's more than one, you know, each, uh, traditional biological cell, you have the nucleus with the DNA in it, and then the, around the cell, you have the, and then you have the extracellular medium around the cell in the human body, whatever. But in the molds, they have more nucleuses, and they, these nucleuses are all over, and they're constantly dividing and making new ones, and mistakes are made in the replication of DNA, and that's what evolution is all about. Most mistakes just don't work. But if that mold is a little, involves a nucleus that sends out, that makes the, the digestive chemicals that are a little more effective for that particular kind of paper that that particular colony is growing on, you're going to have an evolutionary change in that fungus right there in that little microhabitat. And if over time the environment around that area is changing to have more to favor that kind of nutritional digestion over another, then that, that mold will evolve in that direction. That's what nature's all about is progressive evolution. I kind of, you know, it's like this, it's this smartness that's built into the whole biological system. I'm not talking about in, the intelligent planning argument, but geez, you got to hand it to, to the universe. It's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and life on Earth sure is. The more you study it, the more amazing it is. The more complicated it is, the more you realize how little we know. Um, you know, talking about Stacky that you had mentioned before, how does a, and this is in quotes, Mac, toxic molds such as Stachybotrys charterum differ from a substance such as carbon monoxide in regard to toxicity? The lesion, you know, the toxin has, has, a, has a place where it's active. You know, what, what it does, carbon monoxide it makes it so you can't get oxygen to your tissue. So it basically suffocates you without you knowing it, you're being choked to death. Yeah. Okay. Now, Stachybotrys produces symptoms, you know, bleeding. It causes uh, uh, the bleeding, and it, it can be an acute poison. I, the, there was a guy here in the University of Minnesota in our, in our agricultural department who was working to try to militarize Stachybotrys. So it is poisonous, but the acute poisonous lesion, I don't know that much about it. As far as what it was, an acute toxin, you know, like something that you peel over dead in five minutes from being exposed to it type of thing? I don't know. I know that, you know, animals that eat the stuff, you know, go vomiting up blood and uh, get lesions in their lungs and, you know, you get pneumonia-like symptoms of blood in their lungs and that kind of thing. Not not like uh, anthrax, but, you know, some kind of poison. Like I, re- I don't know enough about that to discuss it. I could run and get a book and look it up, but then so could you. Okay. All right. Our marquee sponsor, Instascope. More jobs done faster with the future of IAQ assessment technology. Unlimited samples, instant results, and cloud-based data at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, at AIHA.org. ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, industrial hygiene and safety interested in defining their science at acgih.org the cleaning industry research institute see more deeply through science and research at cirisciencecorg the indoor air quality association promoting the exchange of indoor environmental quality information through education and research at iaqa Org. The Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry, network with leaders at restorationindustry.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry at iicrc.org. 
and Healthy Buildings America 2021 in Honolulu, Hawaii, November 9 through 11 at hb2021-america.org. IAQ Radio industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, free shipping, great pricing, same-day results with no rush fee at aemlinc.com. Particles Plus, feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us at particlesplus.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, over 20 years manufacturing accurate, reliable IAQ instrumentation for portable, short-term, and continuous monitoring at graywolfsensing.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at tsi.com. Sunbelt Rentals, availability, reliability, and ease for all your IAQ and restoration needs at sunbeltrentals.com. April Air, healthy air, healthy home at aprilaire.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers at healthyindoors.com. Annie? Yeah. How fast do mold spores settle in still air? Oh, that's a good question. There's a wonderful book that you can find at used bookstores for about 100 bucks <laughs> called The Microbiology of the Atmosphere by a guy named Gregory. His last name is Gregory. You can get it on Amazon. I got a copy. Then a friend, I told him I was bragging to a friend of mine, showing it to him. Here he had one he got for 50 cents at a used book sale, so go figure. But anyway, Gregory has a nice article on the settling velocities of various kinds of fungal spores, not focusing on just the molds, but, you know, all kinds of fungal spores, mushroom spores, all that. And when you get down to about in that, you know, below five microns in size, now a micron is a millionth of a meter, a period at the end of the sentence in the Pittsburgh Post Intelligence, there's about 100 microns. So when you get down to about five microns, then the thick viscosity of the air retards the fall of those particles so that they fall at rates of less than a yard an hour. They're not really slow. So that's what makes them such nasty little buggers when they're knocked up into the air in large numbers. They take quite a while to settle out. And because of their small size, they're easily deposited deep, deep down in the respiratory tract where they can produce various kinds of mischief if they're left untended. Joe? Yeah, Mac, I'm, I'm curious. Um, we were talking a little earlier about uh, energy rating and, and how people uh, use this as, as a method for uh, – they depressurize the home as a method for trying to figure out where the air gaps are. And I know you're a building science guy. And, uh, in fact, you were just honored up at the summer camp here this year as the guy trying to bring the, the indoor air quality and the building science people together. Um, I'm curious, what would your – would you caution people doing that type of work at all uh, to investigate the area and maybe change the way they do their investigation based on possible, um, let's say, contaminants within a home? Well, first of all, I have to tell you, I I, I have a bias in this. The guy, the the people that make the Minneapolis, the, the Minneapolis Energy Conservatory makes the blower door, and the blower door is basically a rubber sheet that fits into a doorway, has some brackets on it, so you can make it an airtight fit and block off an outside door to the home. Then inside, in that membrane is an elastic hole where you can stick a fan about three feet in diameter. 
a nice sized fan will hang in this elastic membrane. Then you hook up pressure gauges and flow gauges to the fan, turn the fan on, and you measure how much air you have to blow out of that house to create a certain degree of suction. Now, if the house is super airtight, you just have to blow a little bit out of there and the house will kind of deflate. I mean, you'll, you'll be creating negative pressure. If the house is super leaky, you can blow a hurricane of air out that door and not create much depressurization because there's so many holes and cracks in the house. You can't run a blower door test with a window open or it'll compromise the whole test. Okay, so this blower door is a valuable tool for weatherizers because it shows us you know, how leaky the house is. If you leave the fan running, you can go around with a smoke pencil and find out where the air is leaking in. It's fascinating. People have no idea the leaks in their houses. I remember the first time a guy ran one for me and he showed me the recessed lights that went from the kitchen up into the attic. And there was just air pouring down through those recessed light cans. Then we went up in the attic and there, right, this is in Minnesota, cold climate. There right above the recessed light was mold all over the oriented strand board because warm, humid air from the kitchen is going up and condensing on the wood in the winter. It's a valuable tool. Now, when you depressurize a house, do you run the risk of sucking all kinds of nasty stuff out of all the cracks and crevices in the home? I went down to Iowa and tested a bunch of houses, and we really didn't find that. We, we always just, I was just doing mold tests, pre- and post-mold sampling. That's all. That's affordable and easy. I, you know, we weren't testing for all of the different allergens and irritants. But here's the basic logic of the argument that the blower door isn't the threat, and that is that if air is leaking into a house in response to a fan depressurization, it's going to tend to go in through the biggest cracks and crevices. And those biggest cracks and crevices aren't the places where mold grows. Mold grows on damp, still surfaces where there isn't a lot of air blowing back and forth, generally speaking. So, you know, the, you're, you're, the, the idea that you're going to suck a bunch of crud into the house by, from, the, from the building, the dirty building envelope, well, I think it's unlikely to be the case. We had houses where there was basement walls were covered with mold, but when we put the blower door on, that isn't where the air leaked into. Basically, when you blow air out of a house, air has to come into the house to make it up, and that make-up air doesn't come in running along the basement wall, lifting the spores off the wall and blowing them into the house. It comes into the big cracks and crevices. So I'm not as concerned about it as some. On the other hand, there's been some uh, legal cases. People have been sniffing around about these blower doors. And so you can become a plaintiff's expert and make quite a case that it's incredibly dangerous. And you can get on a witness stand and charge them your hourly rate. Try to child charge the lawyer, whatever the lawyer wants to hire you to be an expert. Try to find out what he charges and charge more. <laughs> but we we had a we had a case in Iowa. The reason they hired me was some, you know, you know, juries can be awful stupid, and they wound up giving this guy thousands of dollars because they put an exhaust fan in his base in his bathroom to give him a little bit of exhaust ventilation to, you know, get more fresh air into his house. And he claimed that it sucked mold out of his walls and made him sick. And that I don't know what they had for experts and everything, but they lost the case. They wanted to have the insurance company settled. They gave this guy twenty five thousand dollars. That was sad. Little 40, 50 CFM bath fan made the man sick. If you're that wimpy, you should probably be taken out and shot. <laughs> but that's what happened. And, uh, and uh, so there is a case that people try to make that depressuring a house, pressurizing a house is dangerous. I've certainly never seen it in all of my experience with people using blower doors and using them myself. I've never seen anyone go, oh, man, what did you do? Oh, basically all you've done is brought fresh air into the house, Joe. That's what a blower door does. It doesn't. It, it sucks air into the house to replace the air it's blowing out. And outdoor air, well, I suppose if there's something dangerous, there's an ammonia cloud from an overturned radio railroad car outside the door, it might be dangerous. 
Got a question for you, Mac. Uh, I've, I've heard you uh, use these terms, stupid, stupid squared, and stupid cubed. Can you tell our listeners? So the, the, the robot voice was telling me I was unmuted, and so I didn't hear your question, Cliff. Okay, I'm sorry. I've, I've heard you use these terms, stupid, stupid squared, and stupid cubed. Can you tell our listeners uh, what you mean by that? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. That was, yeah, I used to remember that. Well, with what we know about carpet as a, an accumulator of crud, it's probably stupid to put carpet on the floors of a school. Kids have dirty shoes. Kids are active. Kids spill things. It, and they're crowded. There's a lot of, lot of feet walking around on the carpet. So it's stupid to choose carpet. But to me, that, 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 that's actually the cube value. The stupid thing is to go and pour a slab, a concrete slab for your school, and not properly prepare the site before you pour the slab so that the settling weight of the concrete makes the slab of the building the lowest point on the entire area. So the football field and the parking lot all drain towards the slab because they didn't build it up on a crown. That's stupid. You know, what's stupid squared? Stupid, oh, stupid, so stupid squared is then to carpet that wet concrete, and then stupid cubed is to glue the carpet down so that when it inevitably gets all foul and nasty, you can't clean it. You can't get rid of it. You're stuck with it. It's incredibly expensive. So that's the stupid cube thing. Pouring the wet slab, putting carpet on it, and then gluing the carpet down. It's kind of like, you know, you don't want your last words to be, hey, watch this. Well, that's kind of an example of that. You're just you're sort of you're sort of pushing against nature and nature doesn't get offended. And nature doesn't get, you know, but nature tends to prevail in the end. And if you go against the laws of physics, you're asking for it. Joe, that's what the stupid cube. Did. We got a text question here, Mac. What uh, what do you say to homeowners when they ask um, what can be purchased to help clean the air in their homes? I tell them that the best strategy is to, as Peter would, I'm, I think, would agree with me, if you really are concerned about a level of a contaminant, you should probably wear the appropriate kind of respirator. When you try to clean the whole house with filtration, you get some net effect, but you're better off to remove the source than to try to protect the occupant. Now, on the, other, on, on the opposite side of this, we are... Uh, currently doing a project with a bunch of uh, low-income housing with asthmatic sufferers and we're putting filtration in. we're putting you know merv 12 filters on the return grills in these four stair homes and uh we'll see we'll see whether they produce a benefit uh, but basically especially those various kinds of chemical air cleaners my opinion is that they don't do much good but when people have a sick kid they get desperate and they get are easily conned and to, you know because fear goes into buy, well, for a lot of these products now we, we they sell vacuum cleaners that are excellent air cleaners and they aren't necessarily the most expensive vacuum cleaners consumer reports reviews them. so it's a good the best air cleaning device i can think of would be first to get rid of your carpet and then have a good vacuum cleaner those would be the best defenses i think air filtration for the home um, people spend an awful lot of money on it and I don't know that the benefits have been clearly demonstrated, but removing the dust from the home one way or another is a smart thing to do. But instead of trying to get the dust out of the air, if we can remove the settled dust from the countertops, from the carpets, from the floors, it will have fewer chances to get into the air. I don't know. That's my theory. Mac, could you contrast uh, two different houses? One house has a crawl space with a 
uh, dirt floor. The other one has a crawl space and it has a cement floor. Uh, based with one with dirt and one with a cement floor, if we had fungal colonization on the floor joists and on the subfloor, uh, what do you think would be different in terms of uh, species? Any idea? In terms of the species? Right. Oh, gosh. I've looked at so many of these, and I haven't seen a clearly demonstrated. Uh, the difference in species would be a function of the water activity on the surfaces that are being colonized. And the dirt crawl space certainly is going to contribute a much higher level of moisture to the uh, crawl space environment you know, than, than, the, than the concrete, under, you know, it, all other things being equal. If you have the same site, you know, you're better off to have a concrete floor. Even a, a, good, a good poly barrier on the crawl space floor works as well. All the seams have to be sealed and has to be well attached to the sides. But a good, good, good plastic sheeting. What I often see, though, is instead of dirt, they've done the, basically the plastic trash bag approach where there's just a bunch of pieces of plastic thrown willy-nilly down all over the dirt and the seams aren't sealed and there's bare spots. That'll contribute just about as much moisture as the bare soil. Soil is a huge moisture contributor. Now, the crawl space tends to be cooler, and so it's more easy for moisture to condense down there. And we have cold requirements that are just a disaster in the southeastern United States where they require outdoor air ventilation for that call space. The idea being that you'll ventilate the contaminants out. And in fact, what they do is they send in air, hot, humid summer air with a dew point in the 70s into a crawl space that's cool down in the 60s. So they're basically irrigating the crawl space and just you know, aggravating mold problems. We want that crawl space, whether it's got a plastic floor or a concrete floor, to be the same air body as the rest of the house. We want to have indoors and we want to have outdoors. The crawl space is kind of, if it's an iffy zone, like with a dirt floor, that's a terrible idea. And I've seen, the more, basically what I see, the difference between a dirt crawl space and a concrete crawl space is the air samples collected in the crawl space and often in the floor up above are just, you know, they're right off the charts. They peg my sampler. When you have bare dirt in damp, nice, warm, damp conditions in the summer, that crawl space is just a mold pit. And that air from that cross, that moldy air finds its way upstairs, and I find it in the carpets and everything. A paved crawl space tends to have lower mold levels. But if that crawl space is cool and damp, concrete floor or not, it'll still grow mold on the trusses. You know, and on, actually, you could actually culture mold right out of the concrete, off the concrete. I don't know if that's settled spores or if it's actually growing in there. You know, crawl spaces have to be treated properly. We have to keep them dry enough. Uh, we, we're putting dehumidifiers in a lot of the crawl spaces in our house program I was talking to you about, our research program. Mac, let me ask a question. Uh, I, I want to go back to the air leakage issue. And um, which is which is going to be a healthier home? One that leaks a lot and has heat loss or one that is very tight, leak resistant, and energy efficient? Well, assuming that the outdoor air doesn't – see, I, I have a number of friends that really have to minimize the amount of outdoor air they bring into their homes because they're so allergic, and they're much more comfortable with a clean indoor environment where they've used appropriate materials and prevented moisture problems to have no, you know, just enough ventilation to keep the air fresh. Other people, you know, hell, they love to go camping, sleep in a tent. Now, there's a there's an un the tent isn't very energy efficient, but most almost everybody feels good when they're camping unless their butt gets sore from sleeping on the ground. Um. The fact is, we just can't afford to build these leaky old energy hog homes anymore. Now, if you live, I take this back, if you live in Monterey, California, you know, the, the weather half the time, you can have the windows open, you know, because it's just perfect. The weather's perfect on the coast of California. If you get not too, if it never gets too hot, never gets too cold, 
But that's pretty unusual to have a climate like that. The areas where they grow coffee around the world are in the tropics, but they're in the highlands. So they have year-round highs of 75 and year-round low of 68. Now there you don't. There you can have. Uh, that's the best of both worlds. But in a house where you, in a climate where we have to heat, like Minnesota, you have to make your houses tight and energy efficient as much as you can because you can't afford to live in them otherwise. And if you're broken, driven out into the street with a shopping cart and ragged clothes, you're, that's bad for your health too. What about uh, what are your thoughts on bringing in mechanical ventilation when you tighten up these homes? Well, that's always the the the, the, the mantra is to uh, make the house tight and then ventilate right. So you have to have mechanical ventilation. And the ASHRAE study that's going on now about just how much ventilation is required is a fascinating debate. I get the emails and throw in my two cents worth once in a while. I think mechanical ventilation has a lot of potential. But on the other hand, we're going up to these houses I was discussing in my study, low-income housing in the woods in northern Minnesota. And here they put in HRVs, you know, heat recovery ventilators. You know what they are, Joe, right? Oh, yeah. To bring it. Yeah. And the intakes are completely clogged with cottonwood, and, you know, tree pollen and stuff like that. So there's, there's, there's dust and bird feathers, so there's absolutely no fresh air coming into the house. We've seen heat recovery ventilators where they ran plumbing piping right across the door, the access door. So you can't open the access door to change the filters. The, you know, the fancier the ventilating equipment, the smarter the operator has to be. And homeowners as a group aren't very smart. They want to use the door key to get in and out and the credit card to pay the bills and the light switches and plumbing faucets. That's about it. They're not interested. And a lot of this ventilating equipment to work properly needs to be maintained and has to be operated properly. That's why we're getting big on just having passive ventilation where you just have an exhaust fan, a couple of exhaust fans just running all the time to draw fresh air into the house. Now, we are running risks of drawing horrible, dangerous crud from places like you described, but it's a risk we're willing to take because they've got to have some kind of fresh air. Otherwise, last week's burnt toast will still stink. Modern houses are being built tighter and tighter and tighter, whether, whether you think it's good or not. So we have to have ventilation to go with it. And the trick is to make the ventilation simple and effective. Effective ventilation is ventilation that is provided to the entire place, not just a column of fresh air being dragged from a fan from one hole in one side of the house to the fan. We want to make sure that the whole house gets ventilation. And there's a lot of tricks and strategy to that. I, I'm a firm believer in building these tight. I, you know, we've got to save the energy. I mean, we've got to we've got to do a better job building. I agree with your mechanical ventilation. I'm curious on your comment with the MERV 12, I believe you said, filters that you were putting into these low-income homes. How are you ensuring that they are changed regularly? Yeah, there, there's a there's a little gadget on there that tells them when it needs to be changed out, and uh, you know, hopefully they'll respond to that. You know, we have to educate these homeowners. Got it. Thank you, Matt. Mac, uh, do you have any idea on the pressure um, of water moving through cement by capillary action, what it might be? I've heard Joe Skibrook say that it can lift a ton of weight a mile in the air. You know, it's a powerful force. Then I got these high-density concretes. I've got a guy that's been talking to me about how he thinks that this high-density concrete will prevent capillary wicking of moisture through it because there's no capillary spaces in the concrete. Now, that's I don't know how much you guys know about that. I'm just, just on the learning curve myself. But generally, uh, co concrete sucks water just like a drinking straw. And it's a powerful force. So those interior basement coatings, you know, they're quite, they have questionable value. If there's a lot of hydrostatic pressure, a lot of moisture moving through that concrete, it'll blow the coating right off the side of the wall. You know, and if, so the only way it'll work is if there isn't a problem. 
I have a lot of cures like that. Medicine that'll keep you healthy if you're not sick. <laughs> Matt, can you comment on moisture problems uh, in houses related to windows uh, and window installation and related to Tyvek? Well, I don't think Tyvek causes window problems. But uh, Tyvek is, you know, it's it's basically an air barrier for the outside of the house. It's not made... And it's something of a moisture barrier, but what they've done is the next step up in building new homes is to build these pan flashings into the window assemblies where you have this rubberized material that wraps at least the lower half of the window. So, because all windows leak to some extent. Now, in my old house, wherever I've had to do any kind of surgery on my 100-year-old home, those windows are in perfect shape, and so is the wood behind them. It's all perfect. But I spend a pretty good energy bill every winter drying my house out. So where it does leak the leaks don't cause any problems because the moisture doesn't stay in that dead, still, quiet little pocket where it can produce rot, misery. New houses do have such pockets. So what they do is they, the window is no longer just set into a bare opening or a Tyvek wrapped opening. It's set into a rubber pan that's made to drain any moisture that gets through the window or around the window back out over that weather-resisted barrier, over that, that Tyvek and so the, the, the moisture comes, if it gets through the window, it's manufactured itself, or through the install, you know, the flashing around the side, it'll be caught by this drainage pan at the bottom, this pan flashing made of rubberized material, and then that'll drip out over that, and then drip out over the Tyvek, and hopefully then evaporate back to the outside through some kind of uh, ventilation space that's been made. We're big up here on uh, having uh, houses that have real good, I like ventilated cladding. Where the you know moisture gets back out, it can add, the cladding isn't right up tight against the side of the house. We've just had terrible millions of dollars and disasters with stucco here in my climate. Modern all old houses in my neighborhood are stucco and they're all fine. They're obviously good because there'd be a blank space where it rotted away. There aren't any blank space. Blank spaces. My I live in an urban neighborhood. All the houses are hundred year old stucco and they're all perfect. But the new ones, the cul-de-sacs out there in the suburbs, are just rotting at a terrible rate because you got the that concrete stucco smooshed up against the uh, sheathing and just rotting it away. You know, and Tyvek will not save that. Putting Tyvek in between wet concrete and uh, engineered wood product and four by eight panels doesn't save the wood. It can't, it's not designed to do that. Now, if there's, if this, if the uh, stucco is hung with a ventilation space in between, then we have, then we have the ability for the place to dry out. We break the contact between the wet exterior cladding and the interior space. You have the same thing with brick goes right through the brick and it goes even more through the brick grout and if it's if it has the opportunity to transfer right to the inside i'm i'm dealing with a big high-rise building with all million dollar condo units and the diagnostics on this one you don't need tools just get down on your hands and knees and smell the outlet plates just smells like moldy bread inside the walls they've got brick right up against the sheathing and this is a 1970s building where the sheathing was paper covered sheetrock drywall paper covered drywall and the brick is right up against it, and just it's, it's a disaster. There's nothing. There's not not even any Tyvek. There's nothing. There's no drainage space at all. So the brick soaks the, the gypsum board, which then rusts out the metal supports that the gypsum board is fastened to. The big steel pieces are rusting, and oh, what a disaster! Yeah, we need to make buildings that breathe and are ventilated to the outside that still have an airtight inner envelope, an energy efficient inner envelope with a breathable exterior system. We've got to be able to kick that moisture out. I think a lot of the exciting research that's being done now is on exterior insulation systems where we put up our cladding and then put a bomb-proof rubber membrane over the, over the, not the cladding, put the sheathing 
whether it's OSB or whatever, you know, dense glass, the, the, the fiberglass sheetrock, whatever, and put the, put the waterproofing over that. And then um, we put a foam insulation on that and then furring strips and then hang our cladding on that. Now that's a system that's just, then the wall cavities aren't going to be full of insulation. They're free for use for utilities. We don't get the condensation and the issues in the wall cavities, and then our sheetrock on the inside is safe. That's, I think that's an exciting notion. We're seeing houses being built that way. It's a new skill set. You know, when you're fastening that cladding, you're running a screw that's sometimes 10 inches long to get it all the way in. You know, and guys have to be good to, good to do that, but they can learn. Mac, Mac, you lost me for a moment there. Now, how is your old home stucking? put on different from the 70s version i don't have stucco i got oh. a cedar siding but but the, the stucco in the old timers they would have a, either a mesh or a wood lath and they would press the stucco up against that and then behind the metal or the wood lath was a tar paper real old-fashioned wrinkly tar paper and apparently that ring and then that wrinkly tar paper was fastened to wood boards shiplap or however they were the wood boards were installed the wood boards are installed with the studs and you have a empty wall cavity and then plaster walls on the inside and that system just for whatever reason that's got a lot of different places to dry out first of all interior plaster is much more resistant to moisture problems than sheetrock drywall i shouldn't say sheetrock drywall then you've got the stud cavity you know it's hollow so you can lose a lot of energy through there and then you got wood boards which are wood is a wonderful water resistant building material whereas engineered wood products aren't they're they're vulnerable to moisture problems they can perform structurally like wood if they're kept dry then we have that wrinkledy tar paper which provides sort of a drainage plane a break a disconnect between the concrete stucco and the wood boards but i've seen concrete stucco trawled right onto wood boards in old buildings in northern minnesota Gee, they seem to be in fine shape you know the wood hasn't rotted at all so it's uh now maybe maybe they just burned a wood stove inside and had dried that house out all winter with energy loss sure you know, I'm, I'm speculating here. I don't have the, the, the knowledge to, to really know that. All I know is that we have an awful lot of failures in our modern stucco, and our old ones are all here. Maybe the old guys knew how to do it right, Mac. Well, they did, but they also remember those are less energy-efficient homes, and when you start tightening up stucco homes, you might be creating problems. Now, I've never seen a good study done on what happens when we weatherize stucco homes, blow cellulose insulation into all the wall cavities. Do we reduce the drying potential? There hasn't been a, a good study done that anybody showed me on that. You know, probably because when people get those homes weatherized, it's done on such an individual basis that it's hard to collect the information. And if it's done properly, the cosmetic, you know, they drill, sometimes they drill holes right in the stucco on the outside, but they hide them. So we don't know what houses have been insulated and what happened unless the people self-report. So each one's an experiment. Yeah, every building is a science experiment, isn't it? <laughs> And there's, and there's too many uncontrolled variables and the home, the, the person who's paying the mortgage is funding the research. Got it, Mac. Mac, uh, you know, you and I were having dinner earlier this week, and you know, you, you gave my wife and I this entertaining, uh, I guess, um, relationship uh, between bacteria and kind of poor little rich kids. And I was just wondering if you could kind of give that to our listeners. Real quick, a friend of mine called and asked about a sewage spill into a dirt crawl space, and I told him that. You know, if, it's, if they're standing water, it might be a health concern. But what sewage, this is the whole nature of septic systems, is to get that, those sewage bacteria introduced into the soil where they're rapidly killed off by the mean, nasty, tough, ghetto kids in the, in the dirt. The bacteria in the dirt are tough, and the, the bacteria that are harmful to human health are usually particularly adapted to survive in the soft, 
candy environment of the human gut, where it's kind of like a rich kid growing up in the suburbs being introduced into the wrong neighborhood when it gets into the dirt. The soil bacteria, the soil purifies itself. They say water runs clear after 100 miles. Well, dirt purifies itself, too, and we're, we're not going to see the soil being infested by human pathogens. Thank you. That's what we're talking about. I appreciate that. Mac, is there anything you'd like to add? I think you guys have asked a wide range of questions. It's really good. I like Dieter's point that a filter isn't like a spaghetti sieve. It's a tortuous path that you're making for the particles, but that's another half hour of talk, and we're not going to go off on that. Well, I thought you guys asked great questions. It's We only scratch the surface of an interesting subject, but that's what you guys do every week. Okay, what a great interview. It still holds up well to this day. That was from September 18, 2009. The Roundup is brought to us by April Air, Healthy Air, Healthy Home at AprilAIRE.com. Let's go to the Z-Man for final thoughts on this week's show and our memorial show for Mac Pierce. Oh, just, just two things. I know why there wasn't a blog before. I can't write anywhere near as fast as he talks. <laughs> but um, the, one, the, the one other thing, uh, two words that, that I remember uh, that he said as well is was wood. And his description of this engineered wood is, is was wood and it's already pre-broken down for the mold because it's you know made out of little chips and pieces. But no, I, I, I give my time up. I'm done. You know, I, I was listening, and um, 11 years later almost, everything still holds true to this day. It's uh, Sometimes it's a little scary for me, and I'm, I'm sure you, Cliff, you know, we, we've been on here 14 years. We're going to say a lot of things, and maybe down the road we're proven wrong, but it uh, looks like Mac was pretty much right on. All right, Pete, let's go over to Pete Consigli, the Restoration Global Watchdog. Pete, final thoughts. Yeah. So, listen, I, you know, as I listen to the interview, Mac's style of the interview is exactly, it almost is a mirror of how he gives the live presentations. You know, they said he'll do a PowerPoint, there'll almost be all pictures in there, and then only a couple of script slides. And I actually never really heard you guys ask questions. All I knew is that Mac would go off on the topic, delve into it, and then move on to the next topic. It was one of the most seamless things, I think, of all the interviews over the years that we ever did, uh, that you guys have ever done. The one comment I got a kick in there when Mac talked about and find out what the lawyer charges and charge more, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is something Steebrick. What they asked Steebrick one time, and what, he said this publicly, or else I wouldn't say it on there. But Steebrick. Um, you know, he does a lot of extra witness work. I mean, one of the reasons I think today that he had a call in ahead of time and he couldn't be on the show is because he, he's busy and he, he's doing some kind of work testimonies. But I remember one time Joe's telling a story. It's probably at summer camp. It could have been at a convention. He's telling a story about, you know, the way he goes around as an expert witness on the stand with the lawyers and the lawyers are always to trap him. And uh, this one lawyer decides he wants to go down a road that he should have never went down. And he says to Steebrook, he says, now, Dr. Steebrook, um, I've noticed in reviewing your rate sheets that your normal rate that you charge for the clients, your expert witness work, when you do legal work, is twice as much. Can you tell the court why that is? And Joe, without breaking a, 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 you know, a smile or anything, says, well, that's an easy one. He says, that's because I got to deal with a-holes like you. But, of course, <laughs> he, 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 he completed the rest after the A. <laughs> and I'm thinking, 
Boy, I said, well, I said, what did the guy say? And the guy goes, hmm. <laughs> I moved on to the next question. <laughs> you know, I noticed uh, I noticed my friend Dan Chavez called in and he's still on there. Mac and uh, me did we, you know, we 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 did I did we, the Kansas and North Carolina are two big states. We had we did a lot of presentations there. But I remember we went to Topeka to do one with uh, with Dan and his brother Richard. They had a room packed with all the local insurance people and some property managers. I remember the one thing they said to Mac, Mac, what do you think? It was a pretty great show. He says, you know, let me tell you about that lunch. And one of the things they have, they have this place there called Boss Hogs in Topeka. They're not around anywhere, but they're catering. And on the side of the truck, they had a, a picture of a big smiling pig. And the saying over the top was horrifying vegetarian since 1995. And I remember on the invitation they put on there, that lunch was being provided by Boss Hogs. And they used to make these big monster cookies for the dessert. And I said, how did that work out? He said, I, I, he said it was a good idea to do it. I said, we picked up about five, six extra people that came to the presentation just because Boss Hogs was going to serve lunch. I said, well, it was pretty good. Mac, Mac seemed to have enjoyed the pulled pork and all the trimmings. Um, I'll tell you, uh, yeah. You want to go to the uh, PowerPoint? Yeah, so hold on. I want to finish with the PowerPoint. I got a couple more things, and then I was just going to tell you to key up. John can key up the PowerPoint if you want. Put the opening <laughs> slide in there. But uh, so um, I, I will tell you, uh, Mac. Uh, Mac spoken a lot at the RAA. The last two times that he spoke, the very last time that I recall was in 2010 in Albuquerque. It was the week during the Balloon Festival. It was a fabulous conference, and it was the last. Uh, was the last fall conference that RAA did for many years until a couple of years back we picked we picked it up again, um, but but they, it was a big smash and I remember that was the what we called the summer camp conference because we had a lot of speakers in the summer camp that came in Max entire presentation and Pat Hellman was on there and uh, quite a few other colleagues and uh, um, Professor Rose from University of Illinois and Mac uh, Lou Harriman I could keep going but Mac Max entire presentation as I recall were just case studies of photos. There were, I don't even, outside of the opening slide, Mac Pierce and the closing one, I don't think there's one script slide in there. And he captivated that audience for 40 minutes as he went through those slides the same way that his 40 minute interview that Cliff couldn't keep up to take the talking points for the block. Uh, it was fabulous. And Cliff, you were there, I think you remembered. It was, it was, it was unbelievable. Um, but the, the one PowerPoint that he did here, which is a classic, was in 2007, and it was in Garden Grove, California. It was the fall conference. It was an international conference. We actually had people from the, from the UK, from Australia, New Zealand. Uh, it was a terrific presentation. The, the whole program was great. There was about 300 people, 250 or 300 people there. And what was two things that were significant. That weekend, it was right, Garden Grove was right next to Disneyland in Anaheim. That was the weekend when the fame, those San Diego fires started and the smoke from the fires had worked all the way up. It was in the lobby of our hotel. Talk about the coincidence of a restoration conference. And I remember after that, a bunch of the members, we got to tour the area and we visited with some of the insurance people. Um, and then some of that information was shared internationally, which helped, uh, you know, exchanging of information globally to bring restoration practice together is the main reason why people join the association. Anyway, Mac did this. Joe Stebrick did his presentation first on uh, the second law of thermodynamics for dummies, and then Mac did the idiot's guide, the rules of drying. Go ahead, uh, John. When I say go, go to the next slide. Go, baby. Yeah, so anyway, the, I love the way Mac put the idiotic drying model. 
And uh, so this is what he decided he was going to do to demonstrate the different methods. This was part of a mini presentation that was part of the famous Donnybrook presentations. RA ran for two years from 2006 to 2008. And this was kind of in the middle. There were a series of presentations comparing different methodologies, heat drying, desiccant drying, and, uh, you know, uh, LGR refrigerant drying, pros, cons, methodologies of it. So uh, what the Mac wanted to do is he actually did a test uh, by uh, all his socks. And this laid out what he did. So go ahead and go through the slides. We'll go through them quickly. Uh, anyway, so uh, the, the contestants. So he, he laid out the socks, what he did, how he wrung it out, the methodology, how he extracted it, using a fan, using a dryer, putting it in a plastic bag. Go ahead. He also wrung them out first. I think that's a key, you know. Yeah, right. Well, they, wait, exactly, which is the principles of the S-500, remove all the source to excess moisture first. And Steve Brick always says that in the building, and they got to take the bulk water out. They dry the sock to the original weight, and it's the goal. Here, <laughs> weigh the sock, and soak the sock. It was wet, then he soaked it. And he's got the, here's the air, the, the drying, one air drying on the, like, the clothesline. The dripping wet sock, go ahead. Bringing it out. And he's got his pressure cooker on the stove. Go ahead. Now there's, this is the oven. He threw the temperature by putting it in the oven. Sock in the oven. Ready for the dryer. And I got the dryer. Go ahead. And I think the oven, the purpose of the oven was to do, to represent, maybe duplicate some kind of a kiln drying type of thing. Then he had the clothes dryer. Now he's got another clothesline that's normally in air ambient and taking temperatures. Go ahead. We got the sidewalk temperature. Go ahead. In the sun, out of the sun. Yeah. He was having too much fun doing this. Well, he <laughs> gave this entire hour, now he gave hours. he gave he gave this entire presentation, these 37 slides in 15 minutes to the minute. And he rolled through them. It, it was unbelievable. Go ahead. Keep going. Stone. Yeah. You could tell how serious he wasn't doing this. Okay. Here's the wet sock temperature. Yep. Go ahead. All right. Yep. Yeah, change change in the temperature. Yep. Yeah, I love the fact he has it in centigrade also. <laughs> and what well, this is great for the Aussies. The Aussies love this. Yeah. <laughs> and the Brits. Going. Yeah. Flip Keep going. Oh. Yep. Now, now he's got the fan. Ah, okay. Yep. This is, uh, this is a representative of the dryers that we put in to dry the carpet, and the walls, and whatnot. All right. Next. Temperature again. Flip through yep. these. Boom. Boom. Yep. All right. All right. So now, so some of the rules for the idiots. <laughs> he, he played right on to the thing. The, the weather and stuff is the longer it takes to dry. Uh, if it isn't the heat, it's humidity. M moving air dries faster than still air. Heat is never uniform. The less you think you know, the smarter you are. Salesmen don't always mean to lie, but they usually do. Oh, <laughs> Go ahead, John. Why, the next one. What made me think bipolar ionization on that last one? I don't yeah. know. Yeah, <laughs> and, 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 and the funny thing was is, uh, so all the guys are up there. The heat guys got all excited because they were 
kind of the new kid on the block. You know, the the, the two uh, demonification methods been around a long time, and they were all excited. You know, and Mac was like a new was their new rabbi. You know, because uh, <laughs> they and I said, but yeah, but he said, unfortunately, you know, you can't like take the building materials and put them in a clothes dryer. You know, and then basically, uh, you know, reinstall them as part of the drying process. Um, oh, I, I got a couple. Go ahead. Go ahead. You finish up your final thoughts, and then we're going to wrap it up here. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess a couple things that that I, I kind of like to close with is, um, you know, that one photo that was up there, John. Uh, Could you put the one of me and Mac, the Aiken? I call it Aiken Pain or Mutt and Jeff picture. Um, classic there. Yeah. So that was taken ago. in 1999 at some conference. You can tell we got the patches and the ribbons. If the two of us. That was Mac's Sunday dress suit. That's about as dressed up as you're ever going to see him right there. He had the jacket. He had his little tie. And uh, if that is not a picture, uh, Mutt and Jeff and Aiken paint on it well, I tell you, Mac uh, had that picture on his office desk for so many years. And uh, uh, his wife, Ann, sent that to me um, after his passing, a little note that I'll keep private uh, now how Mac felt about me. I certainly felt the same about him. Um, I'll tell you a couple of three quickies to wrap it up. Uh, at that Charlotte conference in 1999, the RA fall conference where McGinnis said he first met Mac, that we had a, around that, we had a IICRCS 500 meeting, uh, like a subcommittee meeting that was in the development for the second edition of the S500. So there were a lot of outside experts, like Mac and others, that we invited to sit and observe us in the meeting. And uh, I remember one of the things that Mac said later. We used to call back then the Milgo and the micro, uh, the, the the Milgo and the microband battles, you know, over the diff different disinfectants and antimicrobials. And uh, so Cliff was in the meeting, as was Claude Blackburn, and they were going back and forth over the different methodologies, you know, of uh, which the appropriate product to use. And I remember Mac was was so fascinated. At one point, Mac was in the room and he just he was just looking so intently. He didn't say anything, whatever. And then after we took the break, I said, Mac, well, that was really something. He goes, well, it was really fascinating. He said, watching those two guys go back and forth over that. He said, it captivated me. And let me tell you, it's not easy to captivate Mac. So for whatever that's worth, I guess that was an exciting subcommittee meeting. And he got a kick out of that. Um the one thing, Mac, I used to do a lot of road trips with Mac when we drove a lot and we would talk. And one time Mac says to me, he says, Pete, he says, you know, when you talk and you're driving, he says, you could talk and you don't have to look at the guy in the other seat while you're driving. He said, if you keep your eye, he goes, if you keep your eye on the road, I can still hear you. And so I kind of laughed about that. I said, well, I'm a New Yorker. I'm in a tie and I talk on my hands. I look around, you know, and I, you know, I said, well, I'm not going to hit anything. You know, it's not like we're in downtown. We're in a highway. Max says to me, after that, we were in Chicago, and Zlotnick will remember this, at one of the uh, conferences, and we went downtown to go to dinner. And a bunch of us drove down, and I drove him down. And after we got done with the dinner, I remember Cliff and Rusty immediately jumped into a cab, and they took a cab back to the hotel. It was a $50 cab ride. And I said, guys, the car's only parked a mile away. I said, or a couple blocks away. Why don't you wait? We'll drive back together. Rusty, I'll never forget this. Rusty looks at me, and he goes, Pete, my life's worth more than a $50 cab ride. I ain't driving back to the hotel with you. So the other two guys, so Clifford was together. So Gary Fenario was with me and Mac. And they, and Mac, they wanted, they wanted to stop by 
some place to pick up some t-shirts for the kids. And Mac always used to like to stop at the local 7-Eleven to get big bottles of Coke because he, he didn't want to pay the money in a hotel for it, you know, because it was so expensive. And I remember when we got out, they basically said, hey, Pete, you look kind of tired. Why don't you relax and we'll drive back to the hotel? I said, no, I'm okay. I'm not tired. And, and they looked at me and they said, no, you don't understand. Get in the back seat. Take a nap. We'll let you know when we get to the hotel. They wouldn't let me drive the car back to the hotel. <laughs> so after that, on all the road trips, Mac would drive. And Mac used to love to listen to, to, the, to the NPR radio. So we're in North Carolina, and we did a program in Asheville. And we, were, we went to Greensboro, Asheville. And we're on our way down to Charlotte to do that one with Frank Eden that I had told you about. So I was really tired. It was a long day. It was the end of the day. So I'm in the seat, and I figure I'm going to take a nap. So Mac, okay, Pete, go ahead and rest. We're all buckled in, and we're driving. And I figure I'm going to wake up. We're going to be in Charlotte. All of a sudden, my ears pop. And I open my eyes, and I'm looking, and I see a sign, and it says, Welcome to the Great Smokies. And I, and I look over at Mac. And Mac, oh, Pete, you're up. I go, Mac, you turned the wrong way on the interstate. I said, we're in Tennessee. We're supposed to be going the other way. He <laughs> says, you know, I thought that may have been the case, but you were so peaceful and tired. I want to wake you up. I said, you know, wake me up. I said, yeah, we just went 45 minutes out of way. Now we had to turn around and go back. I got to call Frank and tell him we're going to be late for dinner. All right. Okay, okay, okay. So anyway, uh, it was always interesting being on the road with Mac. Uh, I, I so enjoyed it. I just remember these little things with, with such fondness. And uh, he was just such a such an interesting guy and such a good friend, such a talented uh, uh, guy. And, he, and his contribution to the industry was, uh, was really something. You wanted to add something? Yeah, I just need to explain something to the audience that uh, there's a... Okay, first <laughs> of all, Mac told the truth when he said that Pete looks at the other seat, uh, you know, when he's driving. Okay. The reason that Rusty and I and Fanary and Mac wouldn't drive with them again is he looks at the back seat when he's driving, <laughs> when people are talking. And that's why we don't like to ride with them. Well, I, uh, Joe, uh, let me just uh, close with this. The last time I talked to Mac, it was probably about a couple months before he passed. And I, I didn't actually know it at the time. I hadn't talked in a while. You know, me and Cliff, when we would be together in Pittsburgh, we would call Mac once, once a year, twice a year, just to catch up. I would probably talk to Mac two, three, four times a year just to chat. We'd have a little email now and then. So I called him a couple of months ago because I was doing some preparation for next year for the winter break event. And I wanted Mac to present. And I got a lot of the old guys that committed in Steve Brook, a lot of the moisture mop guys, right? And uh, Mac, as soon as Mac picked up the phone, I said, oh, hello, Pete. I could tell in his voice there was something wrong. I wasn't sure what it was. And uh, I said, Mac, it sounded like it don't sound too good. He says, yeah, I'm not that good. He says, I've been feeling good. And he says, I said, well, what's wrong? He said, well, the doctors don't know. and uh, lost some weight. But uh, And then he started to perk up, and I told him what I wanted to do. And he said, boy, that'll be great, Pete. I'd love to do that. I got some new information. I said, yeah, we'll do the, we'll, we'll do an update on the Willie study and uh you know, you do some stuff on the idiot's guide. He said, yeah, it'd be great. It was fabulous. I said, well, look, Matt, great. I'm looking forward. A lot of your old buddies will be there. You know, you'll come on out and come to Florida in January. It's real cold in Minnesota. It'd be terrific. And uh was really thinking we we're going to do that. And, uh, of course, that, that was not to be. And, um, you know, that was my last conversation with Mac. But uh, I think for a moment I picked the spirits up. And then I remember I, I sent a, a private text to both McGinnis and to Cliff. And I, I said to both of them, I said, hey, why don't you guys just reach out to Mac and say hello to him? And uh, he's not feeling good and whatnot. 
And then, of course, you know, a couple months later, we all got the bad news, and, it, and here we are. So, uh, you know, I guess it just goes to show just, uh, you know, live every day to the fullest because, you know, like they say, you just really never know when, uh, never know when you get that old tap in the shoulder and, and the, the time here is over. Anyway, Mac, rest in peace. Always remember your family. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. I want to thank this week's guests, Joe Steebrook, Mike McGinnis, of course, the Restoration Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Uh, by the way, next week, we're going to do the 75th RIA Anniversary Show recap. So Pete will be back, and along with the Z-Man, they'll be bringing us some great information from uh, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. I also want to make sure I thank John. you got to have faith at the controls. And most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. It's been a great week thinking, you know, just looking back on the life of a great man that uh, was so important to this industry and uh, taught a lot of us uh, a lot about mycology. And uh, we'll, all, uh, we'll all appreciate that forever. So we'll see you next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus.